Good morning. Are you ready? So you said that really quickly, but you never know. You never know what God's up to. Uh, you might be ready, you might not. I'm not sure if I am. Uh, the reason I say that is we're, we, we just finished up our series uh, on uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, and uh, I felt like I'm supposed to teach on Psalm 133. Of course, the psalm's about unity. It's a very familiar psalm. You guys probably know that. And so I thought it was going to be an easy week because I've taught on this before and I have notes. And uh, as I began to look at it, I had a one of those princess bride moments where I'm reading the scripture and going, I don't think this means what I think it means. Uh, I think I've been getting this wrong. I think everybody that I've heard teach this has been getting this wrong. And I'm going back and forth and I'm texting uh, Jeremy, on, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah on the Hebrew and stuff. And uh, So anyway, uh, I say all that to say, I think uh, God wants to bring us a little deeper into this. And so even if you're very familiar with Psalm 133, try and listen anyway, this may be new. Um, also, uh, I had, I don't know, two or three moments as I was preparing this, and I was thinking on these passages that I just began to have these kind of unique experiences with God. And the best way I can describe it is he seems unusually excited about this topic. Uh, so... I don't know if we're ready or not. We'll see, okay? Uh, but uh, Psalm 133, three verses, so good. I'm not even going to be able to get it all done today. We're going to have to take two weeks. So we'll do half of it today and half of it next week, okay? You with me? You guys are very quiet today. Should I be more solemn? Is that? No? Okay. All right. Anyway, let's jump in then and see how we're doing. Uh, let me start, I'm just going to read through Psalm 133, all three verses, and I'm going to give you an outline, and then we're going to go back and dig deeper on two points. Um, so, very simple, uh, it's a Psalm of David, and he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Very simple, right? All right, well, we'll see. Now, the, uh, the first thing uh, in our outline is that he's talking about brethren dwelling together in unity. Now, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I've underlined in your notes, and feel free to follow along. The word dwelling. I think dwelling is different than occasionally gathering. So, if your idea of unity is, well, we believe the same creed, and once a year uh, we get together and we're nice to each other, I'm not sure that's what this passage is talking about. I think dwelling might be deeper than that. I think it's relational. I think it actually involves knowing one another. And so he's talking about, in this case, of course, brethren, uh, means the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel with the common father. Uh, they are brothers, and they dwell in the land together. They each have their separate section, but they dwell in the land together, and they gather three times a year for worship, that kind of thing. Also, of course, uh, David very often uh, had psalms that were prophetic, and I'm not even sure if he knew it. A great example is Psalm 22, where he describes the crucifixion 
hundreds of years before we had a Roman Empire and death by crucifixion. Uh, I don't know how David did that. Well, I do. It's by the Holy Spirit. But I, I don't know if David was aware he was doing that. And so I think this is one of those psalms. And so we're also going to be reaching forward into the New Testament where brethren means all of those who have been adopted into the family of God and are believers. Yeah? And so, brethren dwelling together in unity, significantly uh, experiencing unity, not just occasionally uh, having a citywide gathering. All right? You guys up for that? Good. All right. Now, we'll be looking at Ephesians 4 later. And in Ephesians 4, twice, um, where he calls us, Paul calls us to pursue unity. And he does it in the context of calling, which is what we sort of talked about last time in 2 Timothy 1.7. In verse 1, he starts out the whole chapter with, uh, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then he starts talking about unity, as if walking in the calling with which we've been called requires us to do it together. We already talked about that uh, somewhat in the last couple of weeks, right? So, brethren, brethren dwelling together in unity, he says two things. One, that it's good and pleasurable. So, uh, there's a difference, by the way. For example, um, diet and exercise is good. You understand the difference between good and pleasurable. I find pleasurable is exactly the opposite of diet and exercise often. <laughs> and yet, in unity, it's both. It's good and pleasurable. So you get that. We're going to come back to that. And then he says, it's like this. And he gives us two significant visuals, and, and we're going to really dwell on those. The first visual is, he says, it's like anointing oil on the high priest's head, that would be Aaron, flowing down onto his robe. And so I want you to kind of picture this because this is the visual we're going to be looking at today. Now, this was unique to the high priest. And what's unique is kind of the quantity. Uh, all of the priests would be sprinkled with oil. But the high priest, when he became high priest once, uh, they would take oil and just pour it on his head so much that it ran down onto his robes. So it's like the high priest needs a lot of oil. There, and again, we want to be looking at what is the symbolism here that carries into the New Testament that David's tapping into prophetically. And so we'll look at that. And uh, the oil, of course, it says, runs down Aaron's head, runs down his beard, onto his garments. Now, Aaron's garments were his robes of office. Uh, he, the only one that wore that outfit was the high priest. And that would be passed down, those oily garments would be passed down to the next high priest and the next high priest. And so the garment, uh, the robe, represented his gifting and calling. And in, for us, it's the same thing. The best example we see of this in Scripture is in uh, Elijah. Remember we looked in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah uh, runs off into the desert because he's afraid Jezebel is going to kill him and God gives him three things to do. And one of those things is to anoint Elisha as his successor. How does he do that? He walks by and throws his mantle or his robe on him, which was, and Elisha understood what that meant. He went and told his parents, I'm out of here. He, you know, sacrificed the animals he was plowing with and went and started following Elijah because that, that mantle meant calling and gifting. It meant the prophetic gifting. Remember when Elijah was getting ready to go up, Elijah was getting ready to go up into heaven and he's 
he's trying to lose Elisha, but Elisha ain't going to be lost. And so Elisha's falling around everywhere, and he says, if you, remember, if you see me taken up, uh, you'll have what you ask for. He asked for a double anointing. And what happens is, Elijah's taken up, but his mantle falls to the ground. And Elisha rolls his mantle up, goes back to the Jordan, says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Strikes the Jordan River, and it parts in two, and he walks through on dry ground. The mantle, right? And so we need to understand some of the symbolism here uh, as we move forward on this. All right, so one, the robe is gifting and calling for us also. Two, Jesus is the anointed one. The word Messiah, Hebrew, means anointed one. The word Christ, Greek, means anointed one. It's not just his last name, it's his title. He is the anointed one, underline the. Jesus is the anointed one. In Hebrews, uh, there's about a dozen times where he's referred to as the high priest or our great high priest. So Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the high priest. And so certainly this oil on the high priest going forward is representative of Jesus, all right? The second one's a little trickier. He says it's like anointing oil running down on Aaron under the garments. He says it's like the dew on Mount Hermon coming down onto the mountains of Zion. Now, here's where it gets problematic. Uh, first, um, dew is a blessing, and the mountains of Hermon were in the north, and they got a lot of dew, and the, you can go there now and go skiing. It's very tall. I think it's the tallest mountains in Israel, 9,000 feet. Um, but they were not near, they were, they were on the northern border of Israel. They were not near the mountains of Zion. For example, if if Palm Bay was Jerusalem, Mount Hermon would be somewhere a bit north of Daytona Beach. So that gives you an idea of how far away Mount Hermon is. So the dew on Mount Hermon isn't collecting on the mountains of Zion. What's he talking about? Well, um, what is happening is if, you know, the Jordan River is kind of famous, right? Uh, which flows right through Judea, that valley. And, uh, and waters that plain and that area around the, the mountains of Zion. Well, if you trace it back, guess where its headwaters are? Mount Hermon. That's where the River Jordan comes from. And so the dew, these little droplets of dew, these little trickles, come together and they form streams and the streams form rivers and the rivers all collect in the valley and run down and become the, the Jordan River, which at some point uh, in flood season... Uh, they couldn't even cross it because it was so wide and so turbulent. So the dew of Mount Hermon becomes the raging, sometimes, river of Jordan by virtue of being the headwaters. We'll talk more about that next week, but I want you to get the river part, okay? So that's what I think he's talking about here. And then, of course, uh, Mount Zion is where Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God is. And so one... We have Zion, or Jerusalem, the city and the dwelling place of God. Again, we're looking at symbolism that's going to come into play later. Uh, Zion is the city and dwelling place of God. The temple of God was in Jerusalem. Uh, we know where it was. It's not there now. But what do we also know? It will be there again. Jesus will come again, and the temple 
will be in Jerusalem, and Jesus will sit in the temple in Jerusalem and reign over the entire earth. So, past and future, it is the city of God and the dwelling place of God. We know that there will be a new Jerusalem come down out of heaven, and the dwelling place of God will be with men, right? And so, when we talk about Zion, when he talks about in this context, he's talking about the city and the dwelling place of God. We also know, again, moving into the New Testament, that the church is the city and the dwelling place of God. Uh, in Revelation 21, uh, the angel tells, tells John, hey, I want to show you the bride of Christ. And then he shows him a city, the new Jerusalem. They're the same thing. We'll figure out what all that means next week. And uh, we know in Ephesians 2, we've been talking about this, where it says we are being built together into a holy temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it's very clear in the New Testament that the church is also spiritual Zion, uh, the city and dwelling place of God, right? So we want to look at these two pictures in some detail here in a minute, or at least one of them today and one of them next week. Uh, here's the part where I realized I had it wrong and, uh, and I've taught it wrong, and uh, so we'll teach it right today, all right? He ends by saying, there God commands the blessing, life forevermore. Here's where it gets interesting. The there isn't unity. The there is Zion. He says, there on the mountains of Zion, God commanded the blessing. Okay, so uh, if you've heard taught, and I've said, God commands a blessing on unity, that's not what this psalm is saying. He's saying God commanded the blessing in at Zion. And here's the interesting thing. It's past tense. It's not saying God will command a blessing in Zion or will command a blessing on unity. He's saying God, he said, by the way, he's talking about the dew of Mount Hermon flowing down and watering the, the area of Zion. And he says, by the way, that's where God commanded the blessing of life forevermore. So I started pondering that. When past tense. Did this happen? What's God talking about? This commanded blessing that he's already done. And my conclusion is this. In Genesis chapter 12, God, having already done the Tower of Babel and told all the people, you go divide up, pick foreign gods, follow them, have a good time. I'm going to pick one guy, Abraham, and I'll demonstrate for the entire earth, what it's like to be in a relationship with God. So he tells Abraham what? In, uh, and again, this comes right after chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, he says, Abraham, you need to leave where you live and go someplace else. And when you get there, uh, we'll talk. But spoiler alert, I'm going to make you a blessing to the entire earth. And so where does he go? He goes to the mountains of Zion. And when he's there, jump to Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with him and says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I think that's what David's talking about. I think what he's saying is, and by the way, guys, remember that all of mankind was in the earth without connection to God, and God on Mount Zion in Genesis 15, made a covenant with Abraham and established blessing. That that is what he means when he says there, 
God commanded the blessing, the life evermore. Now let's talk about the life evermore part. As here's where it gets interesting, and I had to consult with uh, Jer because of his Hebrew knowledge. Um, the word for uh, life evermore or forevermore uh, can go either way, and it depends on the context. Here's what it means. It can mean eternal life moving forward. It can mean literally from antiquity. So it, it's eternity forward or eternity backward, depending on the context. Or in this case, I think it's both. Here's what I think David is saying. By the way, guys, remember, there's a river of life in God that flows eternally backward. It's, it's from antiquity. It flows into eternity. It's always been. It always will be. We had no access to it. But remember, there at Zion, God commanded a blessing. And for the first time ever, mankind had access to life evermore, this river of life. Now, it was going to take the fulfillment of Jesus and all those things, but that's where the covenant starts. God commanded the blessing. You are, because Abraham made a covenant with God and the mountains of Zion, a blessing for the entire earth of eternal life entered in at that point and began to work. Does this make sense to you? Okay, it made sense to me. So this is what I think that David is saying here, and this is significant, that on the mountains of Zion, God created a touch point for mankind with God's eternal river of life. Now, just using the word river of life, uh, all kinds of other verses should come to mind, right? We know there's a river of life. We have songs about it. We teach our kids, right? So uh, this is when that happened. I think that's what God's referring to. And it's interesting that he's referring to it in the context of dew coming down from Mount Hermon and becoming the River Jordan. So what I want you to see is this psalm highlights the two most important things we see in Scripture, uh, the dual focus of Scripture that are linked together, uh, it, which are, one, the anointed one, and two, the chosen city. The anointed one and the chosen city. Does that make sense? Now, these, if you look at Scripture, these are the big deal. Uh, in Genesis 15, he made a covenant with Abraham. By, uh, by uh, the time of Jeremiah, he's talking about a new covenant, which the anointed one, through his blood, would purchase for us, which we're all enjoying now. That river of life connection started back then. And so that's what we have. We have the anointed one and the chosen city. And by the chosen city, I mean the literal city, past and future. It's, it was a big deal in the Old Testament. It is a big deal in the book of Revelation. It will be a big deal in the earth again. Well, it kind of never stopped being a big deal in the earth. It will be an even bigger deal when Jesus is living there and governing from there. And uh, the church as the city of God. So you guys see in all this picture, does this make sense to you? If you're tracking with this, then uh, I think we can go forward and begin to look at this. Because what we want to know is, uh, we want to go back to the first part. Uh, it's good and pleasant for brethren to dwell in unity. How do we do that? How do we dwell together in unity? Well, we dwell in unity through understanding 
these two visuals. So we're going to make sure we understand the first one today, and then we'll do the second one next week. We'll talk more about rivers. Are you ready? All right. Are you excited about good and pleasant unity? Okay, good. You sound somewhat excited. I'll see if we can work up more. All right. First, the anointing oil. Again, keep that picture in your mind. Aaron being anointed with oil, running down his head onto his garments. Lots of oil. Very simple uh, to understand. Jesus, we said, is the anointed one. Here's what that means, and then I'll show it to you in Scripture. All the anointing the church will ever have, the church already has. Because the head, our great high priest, Jesus, was anointed. There's not going to be more anointing. It's already there. It's already on Jesus. We need to understand this. Because uh, when we pray for more anointing, what we're really asking for is something else, and we'll get to that. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, right? So he keeps uh, working this analogy. He's the head. He's the head of the body. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence? Uh, spoiler, it's always been about him, never about us, okay? Still is. Uh, it's only about us in the sense that he really loves us. If he didn't love us, we would Anyway, uh, he makes it about us. So, that he would have their preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of God, the anointing, the anointing oil, all the gifts, all the power, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the stuff, all the fullness. Where is it? In Jesus. How much? All of it. So, if any of it's in you, it's only because he's in you that it's there, right? So one, Jesus is the anointed one. His head has been anointed. He is the head of the church. That's where it is. And so what we want to do is get to the part of the picture where the oil flows down because we're the body, right? And so the oil flowing down means we aren't after more oil. Hear me. We aren't after more anointing. We aren't after more oil. We're after more connection. Because we have all the oil we need. What we need is flow. We need the oil from the head. I need the oil from the head to get on me. And if we're a body, and I'm not the neck, I need, I need some other body parts to help that oil get on me. You understand what's going on here? Interestingly, this is what Paul describes in Ephesians 4. I'm going to look at verses 13 through 16. He says, uh, Till we all come to the unity of the faith. So that's the goal, unity of the faith, right? Of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul's saying we want to come to the unity of the faith so that we can experience this fullness of Christ, this fullness that's in his head. Well, how are we going to experience the fullness that's in the head, that's on Christ? Uh, skipping ahead, he says that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. So he's saying, well, we've got to grow up into that connection. We've got to grow up into the connection of the head. Not only to him, but to each other. 
Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together, we got to do that, by whatever joint supplies, that's our gifting and our calling, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Do you see how this looks a whole lot like that picture of Aaron and, and the oil on the head flowing down? Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Now, the oil on the head flows down onto the garments, right? And we said that the garments represent calling, gifting. You have garments. God's given you a mantle, an anointing, something, right? You understand, the oil on the head has to flow down on the garments. Here's my point. Uh, God says the giftings and the callings of God are without repentance. He says that in Romans 11. So uh, God's not going to take away your garment. If you have been gifted and called and given a garment, you get to keep that garment. That's yours. But you know what you don't have necessarily? Oil on your garment. For the oil, you're going to have to be connected to God and to his body. Now, if you're good with doing your calling without oil, and kind of a, a, a parable about ten virgins comes to mind, then you go for it. I want oil. And if I'm going to get oil on my garment, i got to be connected to the head. And it might mean I need to be connected to people around me to be connected to the head. Does this make sense? Okay, I'm going to make sure I'm not reaching too far here. I'm being a little bit more interpretive than I usually am. Uh, so the oil on the head flows down onto the garment, us, calling. Oil. I need oil. You need oil? I want oil on my calling. I've done some of my callings uh, without oil. They were squeaky. Better with oil. Now, so that's what we want. We want that connection. We want that flow. So how do we get that? Well, here's the thing that we need to see. Jesus, and I'm going to look at another passage here. Jesus is the place of unity. He is the place of unity. He is the clubhouse. He is the, the gathering point. He is where we have unity. We got to get this. The church, I believe, has made the mistake of trying to be unified in activity and expression. Uh, and, and so if we're doing the same thing, that's unity. If we're saying the same things, that's unity. Well, what's interesting to me, and we just looked at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, God says there's a diversity of gifts, there's a diversity of ministry, there's a diversity of activity. Why are we trying to be unified in the thing that God said he made diverse? Right? Have different activities, have different gifts, have different uh, ministries. Our point of unity, our place of unity is the man Jesus Christ. Let me show you this in Scripture. John 17, Jesus is praying. He's praying also for all those who will be saved, which is all of us, right? And he says in his prayer, verse 21, that they may be one, unity, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. How are Jesus and the Father one? They're in each other. How are we one? 
in him. He is the meeting place. I mean, literally, he is the meeting place for unity. We have got to see this. The church has got to see this. That we are only one in him. He's not, I don't think he's talking about we all believe the Apostles' Creed, and so we're one. I think he's talking about literally in him, dwelling together in him, experiencing him. So he says, uh, you, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. That sounds good. And that the, and the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. So uh, there's even a tool he's given us. I'll talk about that in a minute, glory, to make us one. Now, uh, we also, not too long ago, we were going through the mysteries of God. You remember one of the mysteries in Ephesians 1 was the mystery that God had purposed to gather all things in heaven and earth, where? In Him. You remember that? All things in heaven and earth in Him. That's the goal. So we just, we just get there early. We just start the unity thing early. In Him. We have to see that the meeting place is in Him. What does that mean? Well, I know, personally, if I want to be in Him, I typically engage in prayer and worship. Those are the things that connect me to Him, that allow me to be in the Spirit, in God. Right? Anybody else do that? All right. Ready for a great uh, intuitive leap here? The church must pray and worship together to be in Him. I think, we, I think we have to do that. I think that's how we abide in Him. I think that's how we dwell together in Him. I think the church must and will learn to pray and worship together. Now, do you pray at home? Sure. You worship at home? Sure. And that's good. But there is something that happens when we gather and pray, when we gather and worship. He dwells in our midst. We uh, kind of, we get in the clubhouse. We get in Him. And a unity thing begins to happen. Connection begins to happen. Or, in other words, oil flows down. If we make Him our meeting place, oil will flow. Now again, I'm not talking about the building. We could come here and sing songs and not be in Him and not have oil flow. We could meet out in the field and meet and be in Him and have oil flow. It's not about being in the building. It's not about being in the same place. It's about being in the same man, Christ Jesus. Being in Him together where all of our diversity doesn't matter because it, that's the focal point. Is this making sense? Okay. Because I think there's power in this. I think oil will flow if we do this. And, uh, and I, want some, I want some oil flowing. All right. And some river, too. We'll talk because we're going there in a minute. All right. So, let's finish this up. We said, uh, or... or David said, rather, that this unity is good and pleasurable. And we saw a little bit of this at the end of John. Let's see how it's good. One of the ways this unity is good is it's how the world believes. That, uh, we saw that right in uh, John 17, 22. And 
uh, or sorry, 21, uh, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Somehow our unity is a witness to the world. Who figured? Right? And uh, the, don't be mistaken, the world's watching, whether we're unified or whether we're arguing. They're watching. And so, not only does he say it's good because the world will believe, he's saying, I've given you my glory. I've given the church my glory so that they can be one. Now, I've taught on this before. Here's what God showed me about this. If you look at glory, uh, well, going back to Exodus, Moses got real excited about the presence of God at one point, And he said, if you ain't going to the promised land, I ain't going to the promised land. Because uh, God had had about enough, and he threatened Moses to send him with the hordes of Israel on his own. And Moses said, I ain't having it. Uh, I am not going without you, which is a good attitude. And then, and so God goes, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses, feeling bold, says, show me your glory. And God goes, okay, I'll show you my glory. Remember what he did? He passed by him and declared his goodness, his mercy, his loving kindness, his forgiveness. That's his glory. So when God says, I have given you my glory so that you may be one, he's talking about his goodness, his mercy, his loving kindness. That's why in John 13, 35, when he says, now by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the same thing. It's his love, his goodness, his mercy. Basically, the fruit of the Spirit. So he's saying, I've given you my glory, my goodness, my mercy, my love. And if you'll enter into that, uh, it'll bring you into unity and the world will be impressed. That's good. That's the plan. Is this making sense? So here is where I think we have gotten it wrong. Uh, when we've taught, and I've taught, that Psalm 133 says that God commands a blessing on unity. It's not what Psalm 133 is saying. What Psalm 133 is saying is there's a river of life. And, and in Zion, God connected us with that blessing of life forevermore. And that we can have the fruit of the Spirit. So in other words, God is not commanding a blessing on unity God is saying, unity will come from the blessing I commanded back there. Does that make sense? Let me say that again, So I want you to get this. God is not saying, I'm commanding a blessing on unity. God is saying, I commanded a blessing. I did everything so that you could access the river of life, the Spirit of God, bear fruit of the Spirit, and have unity if you'll come into me together. That's what he's saying. I love that. I love that Psalm 33 is saying, God commanded a blessing. And that's where we began to have the idea, the concept, the hope that we could live together in unity. Because God will give us life from that river that goes all the way back and all the way forward. Is that making sense? Okay. Because again, I'm, I'm being a little more interpretive than I usually am. But, I, but it, it's fitting with me. So, one, it's good because this is how the world sees that we've actually touched the river of God and, and have a connection with Him. 
two, it's pleasurable. Remember, uh, David said it's good and pleasurable. Well, let's talk about the pleasurable part. Uh, I love Isaiah 56, 7. You guys know it, so I'll just remind you. It says, my house will be called a house of? Is that, is that true? Is that in most churches you go to? Is that the case? Do you think it'll happen? I think it'll happen. I think God's house will be called a house of prayer. Somehow, I, there was a, a, an evangelist from Argentina that came here, and they were in revival, and um, they were asking him, how do we get revival? And he came to speak from Argentina. He said, ah, he goes, I love America. He goes, you guys will send missionaries. You guys will send money. He goes, you guys will do anything but pray. Ow. He was trying to tell us something, wasn't he? How they got revival. That's all they had was prayer. And it worked for them. So, his house will be called a house of prayer. The church gathering together in the one who is the meeting place for unity. And, bonus, Isaiah 56, 7 also says, the saints will be joyful in my house of prayer. Not only is the church going to learn to pray, the church is going to learn to like prayer. It's going to be fun. Not a chore. My saints will be joyful in my house of prayer. How's that sound? All right, well, we should probably keep working on that. I want to end with uh, Psalm 45, verses 7 and 8. And by the way, not being super interpretive on this one, this is clearly talking about Jesus because this passage is pulled into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, and the writer of Hebrews says this is about the high priest. So uh, whoever wrote Hebrews did it, not me. Uh, this is about Jesus. And he says, uh, Psalm 45, verse 7 and 8, I want you to again get this picture. You loved righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore God, your God, God being Jesus, your God being the Father, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He is the anointed one. He has been anointed with what kind of oil? Gladness. Wow, it took a minute. That sounds pleasurable to me. Sounds like God's having a good time. The oil of gladness. He has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments, what are the garments? That's us, right? That's the body. That's the gifts in the church. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces. How did that happen? How did his anointing make his garments smell? Come on. Ran down. What's the picture? Jesus, the anointed one, gives him joy. It's, in, it's the oil of gladness. It comes down on the robes. We start getting happy about it. His body is experiencing this. And then here's what happens at the end. The, the, all your garments are sent in with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. They being those smelly garments that smell like Jesus' happy anointing oil. That's you. 
They make him glad. So here's the picture I'm getting. Jesus, in Psalm 45, God anoints him with the oil of gladness. It gets down on his robes and begins to smell good, like the anointing oil of gladness. And Jesus says, that oil on these guys is kind of making me happy. He's getting glad. Now, when Jesus gets glad, it probably gets fun. Are you, are you seeing the pleasure part of this? I love that this picture is all through Scripture. Uh, that Psalm 133 is deeper than we thought, I think. Or at least that's what I was getting. Uh, so just as a bonus, uh, I'm out of notes, so I'll quit talking about that. But uh, this morning, uh, Pastor Tim Franklin up at Freedom Christian Center um, uh, texted me. He, he uh, likes to pray for, you know, we pray together and he likes to pray for other churches. So occasionally I have a word and he'll send that word. So this morning he texted a word. Now he didn't know what I was talking about. Um, that I'd be talking about rivers and life and all this stuff. So he texted me this morning, the river is going to widen today at Church on the Rock. Who wants some of that? All right. So I think, if I'm getting this right, all we have to do is gather together in Him in worship and prayer. And then the flow will happen. He'll widen the river. You guys, you guys want that? All right. So why don't we do this? Let's have the band up. And, and Lori, I think Lori had a word also. Why don't you go ahead and share that as the band is coming up. And uh, then we will go back into worship. And we'll see if we can widen the river. Amen. All right, so Saul, you guys tracking with this? It got me excited, which, you know, I have to tell you because you can't always tell if I'm excited. But, uh, so I'm hoping it's getting you excited too. You can tell I'm excited. <laughs> um, this morning I got this word, Hebrews 1.14 talks about are not angels ministering spirits here to minister salvation to the heirs of salvation and I felt like that was a now word for us um, just want to encourage you that when you enter into worship that you would go after go after that experience that the angels are pro-offering to us that we would we would just um, know salvation in its fullness we're in Christ we are heirs of salvation we are in Christ already, and we have access to all of that salvation. If you need joy, if you need healing, if you need your heart restored, if you need darkness yanked from you into deliverance, if you need from him, these angels are here to minister that to you on behalf of our Christ. Christ. 